everyone. Welcome to our first episode ever of Curing the World. Today, my co-host Qiqing and I will be talking about crossing the chasm in healthcare technology. In the early 90s, Jeffrey Moore wrote this book, Crossing the Chasm, in an effort to help marketing and selling high-tech products to the mainstream customers. Now, 20 years has passed. This book is still widely referred to as the Bible for entrepreneurial marketing. In a nutshell, Jeffrey summarized the technology adoption lifecycle in five categories and the bell curve. On the left-hand tail, you have the innovators and the early adopters representing less than 15%. In the middle, you have the early majority and late majority. On the right-hand tail, you have the laggards. And putting this in the healthcare context, we have been observing even more late adopters or laggards. We're interested in discussing what are the drivers for the chasm and how can we cross it? Hey, Yiqing. So when I was thinking about this topic, the first thing came to mind is how little the clinicians trust the technology, right? Uh, so my daily job has been working with clinicians around the world, and I was surprised to find that everywhere in the world, there seems to be some level of resistance to uh, using technology to replace some of the manual work. And most of the time, clinicians will perceive the manual work to be safer. And this is something, you know, I'm really perplexed about. Yeah, I have a very similar kind of reason or personal motivation for ex exploring this topic as well. Um, so, you know, my, my day job is literally helping our company develop products, software products that uh, would make the lives of um, clinicians and patients easier. That is literally my day job. And uh, the challenge of being able to deliver innovation into the hands of providers is something that uh, I face every day. Um, and I, you know, there are a lot of innovative products out there and uh, sometimes they um, have traction and people actually start using it. Uh, but sometimes, you know, m majority of the time, I would say that uh, it becomes really difficult for people to adopt and eventually, it, you know, unfortunately dies off somewhere. And all of them are started, you know, were started with good intent, but uh, sometimes it's really difficult to drive traction. So that's something that, you know, I personally feel very passionate about is to kind of really decipher, you know, and understand why it's why it's so hard. You know, after all, we healthcare in itself is a industry that should be innovative, you know, think about all the drugs that are being, you know, discovered every every year, you know, all the kind of new therapies are discovered every year. It is by nature should be an innovative um, industry, but uh, we're also seeing that it's very slow in terms of technological adoption. So very interesting topic for me personally um, to discover. Uh, could you maybe give some examples of what you observed in, you know, in your environment and yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the biggest challenge if you ask, uh, you know, product managers, software engineers, people out there who are developing um, software for, uh, you know, or digital tools in general, or trying to drive some kind of a change in the healthcare world. Um, one thing that is always a challenge to them is how do you work your product into the day-to-day -day workflow of clinicians because you know it's notoriously uh it's notoriously known that they're extremely busy you know they may not even have time to have lunch they see patients back to back uh everything's extremely chaotic so you know it's kind of almost like a design challenge to 
to the product people, to the engineers, of how do we make a product that is so seamless and so valuable to our providers that they're willing to change their day-to-day -day clinical behaviors and be able to ad adopt something that is you know, completely new to them. Um, so that's something that I think uh, I see you know, every day. That's something that uh, I, th I see a lot of my peers trying to design software for physicians. That's what they face every day. Um, and I think that's one of the kind of exciting things about about thinking about you know how do we actually tactically drive innovation that will end up actually on the physician's desk desktop let's say yeah that's so interesting that you said that because you are seeing it more from the designer perspective on more on the technology side and where i'm you know the environment i'm in is significantly in kind of the delivery side where mm -hmm. we're the end users right so if i put my um, you know, healthcare delivery side on, it, it became, you know, started calculating, okay, how, how, how much time do I need to adopt that and how much change management I have to do and how do I translate this technology into, you know, actual numbers, into the benefits, right? Is that the managed time saved or is that cost savings or, uh, or revenue gained? Uh, so the P&L concept definitely uh, it became a muscle that, you know, kicks in <laughs> right away when I hear these technologies. So um, how do we, and I think that's exactly the chasm that we're talking about, right? How do we connect the, the A side to the B side? Was it Japan Yifang in Chinese? Mm -hmm. um, so, so how do you connect those two uh, sides of, you know, um, understanding that the brains is wired differently? Mm hmm yeah, to yeah, I, I totally agree. And to add to that, you know, I think one of the interesting thing about the healthcare ecosystem set up in the United States in particular is the the complexity of um or the you know, the multi-sided interests um, of parties that, uh, you know that uh, are being involved in in this right. so you know it's it's patients it's providers it's payers it's the government it's the pharma you know it's all and you know and then each one of them you can have many kind of all the little subsets of interest groups that are involved so um you know it's 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 a multifaceted issue and sometimes if you want to solve for one you almost have to solve for all and that becomes extremely challenging because you know as a small group if you have limited resources it's uh, it's i can't speak it's extremely <laughs> difficult to uh boil the ocean let's say uh because of the natural involvement of, of all the different parties that are you know in this together with you yeah and maybe that posed an interesting question right um so, so maybe if i'm understanding you correctly you're kind of uh, proposing a potential explanation to this, uh, you know, phenomenon that we're seeing is because there are way too many parties or way too many, you know, uh, stakeholders involved in this with different incentives. But are you suggesting that uh, when we make it more simple, for example, it's not multi-payer system, it's single-payer system, and not a, you know, multi-provider, you know, distributed provider system is more, you know, single provider like the UK, the NHS, and are you suggesting that that will be a better environment for healthcare innovation? Well, that's the million dollar question, right? I mean, if you think about putting the, we're in the backdrop of election year and, uh, you know, you have folks like Bernie Sanders out there screaming Medicare for all. And uh, that, you know, that's the hypothesis that uh, um, a single payer system for America in particular would drive better outcome for patients. That's the hypothesis. However, we've also seen that many hypotheses go 
extremely wrong when they're actually being uh, implemented and executed. Um, and there's you know, lots of noises and factors that can that can um, um, you know reflect that. Um, like for example, another question, uh, another kind of uh, hypothesis that people normally have is that uh, uh, more competition means lower price. Um, however, I think several years ago, and you know, the whole like lower price means better, uh, uh, more competition means lower price at the same time, better quality. That's something that people have been um, saying about healthcare for a while. You know, the assumption is that if we increase competition, you know, if we give more price transparency to patients, then they will know how to make better decisions and ergo, you know, give, uh, hold our providers more accountable for that. Um, however, there was a news article that I saw several uh, years ago, actually, it's not an old one, from New York Times, and they brought in a very good example, a very interesting example about Danish um, cement um, industry. Uh, and then the fact that, you know, they did increase competition, however, um, they did not the what well, they did increase competition competition but the price actually didn't go down it went up um because the cement industry you know the the thing about cement is that it uh hardens quickly ergo you think that you have competition but you really kind of don't and uh, you know you let's say you're not going to be able to bring a cement uh, go to a cement supplier let's say you know 50 miles away because they're just too far um, and it's kind of in the same sense with healthcare as well you know people are really limited to the local providers that they are given you know they're not going to travel really far but in the cement situation or example what happened was that uh, all of a sudden you know the uh, price became transparent and all the suppliers start talking to each other like, oh, wow, you know, I realized that I can actually charge more because look at my peers, they're charging more. And uh, then they're able to increase their price and people were stuck with them, essentially. So, you know, that's a very good hypothesis gone wrong um, example. So, you know, in healthcare, so, you know, I, I, I don't know if I would be so hasty to say that, uh, you know, a single payer system would just solve it all or would actually make it better. I think there's way too many factors that would change it. However, what I think what we should do is, you know, be more experimental. Let's say, let's look at some small examples where you, something that resembles a small, you know, uh, a single payer system. And let's see if it actually works before we go in and completely, you know, halt the entire system without knowing how it would actually turn out. You know, partially, I think that was actually one of the reasons why Obamacare was, you know, not as successful is because they attempted to just completely gut the system or, you know, apply a really, really big overhaul. And that, and we did see that there were a lot of practical things that, you know, issues and challenges that people run into because of that, um, you know, so, Going back to kind of an agile process, how we do, how do we design something, implement something, and improve it over time, is going to be crucial as we design the future, you know, future states of healthcare and how. One of the things that strikes me that's special about healthcare is on the supply and demand. It's it's quite different, right, compared to other industries. The level of supplier, right? You have the physicians. And on the demand side, it's not necessarily the consumer that knows what they need or what they want. Um, it's not buying something on Amazon, but instead what you need, uh, the treatment, that the diagnostics are both dependent on the 
physician judgment, right? So how you set up the incentive for the physicians might hugely influence the results of, of healthcare innovation or healthcare cost. And this also remind me of the paper by uh, Dr. Kenneth Arrow. I think back in 1963 or 65, he had a paper on uh, uncertainty and the welfare economics of medical care. And specifically, he discussed how the asymmetric information may drive the failure of market economy in, in the healthcare industry. Well, let me ask you, you know, a, a different question, right? Um, I think it's always good to think about what our current landscape is and, you know, what assess this current situation per se before we really think about how we can make it better. Um, I think one thing that people always say is that healthcare is slow. You know, that's what you always hear. Healthcare is a slow industry. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, why do you think that healthcare is slow? And is it actually slow? I can imagine when, when people talk about slow, uh, they could be talking about their experience is not changing significantly different. Um, you know, if, if I hear this from patients and if I hear this from the clinicians or the nurses and the doctors that we have, I can imagine that they, they feel convenience or easiness, uh, you know, support that they get. You know, for example, how fast can we do the contact tracing, right, compared to fintech? It's so fast compared to whole healthcare easiness, but it's kind of in people's perception, right? I'm, I'm kind of, you know, bought into that comment about, yes, healthcare is being slow. And if we trace back to you know, the root causes of the slowness, um, I would say, you know, a huge factor has to do with, uh, it has to do with people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. So when, when you deal with people's lives, it's very personal. And of course, yep. huge liabilities, and mm -hmm. uh, which naturally give people a bit, you know, push people to a more risk averse set. Money is important, but money is not your life, right? So mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. uh, of course, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be fast on paying with my Monzo or Venmo. Uh, but, you know, I would be hesitant. I would think twice when... I'm committing, you know, you know, more than that, <laughs> too. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it became personal. So I think that that is one huge factor to it. Um, and what do you think? Well, what is one factor that you would name as repulsing your neck of woods? Yeah, I think I think about this quite a bit. Um, to me, um, one of the factors I recently thought about that could be really interesting is the ability to measure outcome. So, you know, I've worked in non-healthcare spaces where, you know, if you implement something, you expect a certain kind of outcome to come out of it, and it's very easy to measure. Uh, for example, you know, let's say we put an ad out on Facebook, you expect, you know, this, if you, let's say, do uh, A-B tests, you, you put one ad for this population, one ad for another population, you simply can measure by the number of clicks you get for these ads, and, you know, maybe some follow-up. Um, metrics that you can measure to see how successful the ad is. But the metrics and uh, the outcome in itself is quite easily measured because data is clean and it's easy for you to get that. Healthcare, I think it's a different thing in a sense that patient outcome is a very nebulous um, outcome that you can measure for uh, because it's a combination of, let's say, 
the you know did you get better right it, it, you know once between you going to a hospital to when you leave a hospital did you get better but that can be measured in you know vitals that can be measured in you know your if i'm in cancer you know it's overall survival probabilities but it's typically modeled sometimes with comorbidity let's say so so you know if i have a very healthy patient that uh, has seen you know very very large improvement in their overall quality of life versus if you have a patient with severe diabetes and then but then the patient saw a little bit improvement in their health well if i were a doctor sometimes the diabetes patient with little bit better health could actually mean that the doctor did a really really good job but it's just because the com comorbidity it makes it really easy to, it makes it really difficult to measure you know outcomes and be able to compare it across the board um, similarly, and that's only just the care outcome in itself in a very narrow sense, but there's also, let's say, patient satisfaction that is really difficult to measure. You may be able to apply things like, you know, NPS or other things, you know, press gainy to measure that, but that's also very, you know, heavily dependent on how it's administered. Um, is it, you know, patient, did patient receive this for, uh, receive this survey, let's say by the end of the, uh, visit, was the doctor in the room? Was the doctor outside of the room? Right? So all these big, uh, factors factors would uh, heavily sway the way that outcome is overall measured and the, compared across the board. And I think it's because of the opaqueness of the nature um, of measuring outcomes that makes it difficult for us to then compare um, across different providers and then be able to, uh, you know, let's say, really um, identify the good ones from the less so good ones and be able to help them improve. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I think a third factor, if I were to think about it, is, is the, the key to, uh, to, to the incentives, right? Reimbursement. Mm -hmm. so, yes. so how are we going to incentivize the key players to invest in these innovations? Of course, in pharma in the U.S., that's, that's probably an extreme example where you get a lot of you know, fundings for research and development. Um, in my sector of, of the industry, is more on the healthcare delivery side. You can talk about, I think in the later episode, we can spend more time talking about the Kaiser model or mm -hmm. even the more integrated care model. There's huge risk in entering into a innovative model mm -hmm. without getting alignment, you know, for, from the provider side, right? Without getting alignment with the payer. And sometimes the payer is an insurance company. Sometimes the payer is, is government, depending on where we're talking about. And I would say looking across the reimbursement policy, at least from my observation, there are very limited, at least from the government side, very limited policies that encourages such, you know, innovative model on healthcare delivery. Um, well, I can name one, probably the, the famous example is, uh, is the French government. So of course, they open up the reimbursement to additional health, right? This is a good example. And Prior to COVID, uh, digital health is, you know, it, it was a slow topic. Not until COVID hit did many payers, so say insurance companies, start to consider, okay, we will actually reimburse you on a uh, per visit, uh, per consultation. Uh, but if you think about it, this 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 payment model is also not mature. Um, of course, people are pushed into it during, pushed to adopt it during this external uh, pressure from COVID, but. Uh, the, the payment model itself is still not mature or transparent to a point enough. Measurement of success isn't clear either. So if we were imagining if we're in a normal time, I can only think about this 
you know, without getting those sponsors, the reimbursement system will likely not change. Yeah, and that's why, you know, I think one thing that you rightly, rightfully pointed out is the involvement of government and, you know, with kind of any kind of industry, once you start becoming heavily regulated the way that healthcare is, then it typically makes things slower. Um, especially in a lot of cases, like, you know, partially within the US and majority wise for NHS, uh, you, the government is actually the one that's putting the bill. So, you know, you, so it's not like they're only just putting out policies to regulate it. No, they're directly involved in this as a customer. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, then, then that's where you start getting to, you know, the, the topic of healthcare being politicized and the uh, um, government taking forever to do you know, its own bureaucratic things, um, and that typically I think slows slows people down as as well. But I think it's you know in a sense uh, ex people always say you know there's heavy regulation in government and you know healthcare is slow. I sometimes also think about the fact that it's actually a good that it's slow. You know, t to your point, it's after all it's people's lives that you're you're you know working on and uh, you're trying to save. So the fact that it's people's life, you know, it makes me feel honestly better as a patient myself that, you know, my government is actually having <laughs> some kind of regulation, you know, somebody's watching it and I, I feel better this way. Um, so I think it's slow, but it's also, it's slow for a good reason sometimes. Yeah, and on the other hand, if you look at the WHO's workforce report, by 2030, we are expecting a shortage of almost 10 million clinicians, including physicians, nurses, and midwives globally. And on the U.S. alone, we have almost 150K physicians needed by 2033. So the question is, how can we be keeping safety while still being prepared for the upcoming shortage? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's very interesting that you brought up the topic of um, the aging population and the, the overall shortage that we observe in the provider world. Um, do you see that as a reason or a motivation that uh, innovation should happen faster within healthcare? Yeah, if I just put in the business hat on, right? So for things to change in the private sector, at least, you need to have a really clear incentive to do so. And if, if that incentive doesn't come from the revenue side, the reimbursement side, then the incentive has to come from the cost saving side, right? So if, if you're, you're, you know, physicians, you continue to face a physician shortage, nursing shortage, then obviously you need to think about how you can still keep running a business, uh, you know, a healthy, sustainable business mm -hmm. uh, on, on serving the patients and bringing quality care to patients while still having, you know, a sustainable model in mind. So, and I think I, you know, as we were speaking, right, I, I couldn't help but keep thinking about this, this thing about short-term and long-term vision, right? So obviously in the, in the pharma industry, it's a, it's a, a bit, different dynamics, as I said, because, you know, it's hugely pipeline driven. I think, you mm -hmm. know, better than I do in this field uh, where you will be plan, plan, you know, way long term and, and mm -hmm. before your, your, you know, second, third phase mm -hmm. is gone, you're starting to think about what's, what's later on, right? Uh, however, in the healthcare delivery side, I mean, you try to be, you know, think about your five-year plan and 10-year mm -hmm. plan and how much in advance can you really be planning about because you know 
I keep imagining, you know, what is it like when we hit singularity, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, the point, the point where everything changes and we start to, you know, I don't know, just being crazy. I think I <laughs>、uh, still think there will be a time there will be more, maybe not physical robots、uh, being help,、mm-hmm. you know, being assistant to healthcare, but it's you know something of the sort. You know that that's kind of the nerdy side of me. I just recently finished the show <laughs> Humans. I don't know if you heard about it. It's a Netflix a British show, and recommend people watch it、mm. if you haven't、mm. <laughs> and get crazy with me. Yeah, I mean it. You know, it's real, right? When you have so many, I think it was twenty fifteen. We had ten、um, percent、uh, in you know. In China, that's、uh, that's above sixty to sixty five years old,、mm-hmm. right? But now we're hitting what fifteen, or even you know we're projecting to hit even twenty twenty five in the next five to ten years. So、um, it, it is just you, you have no no way around it. There's just not enough resources to take care of the aging population, like you said, and. Disease and will only get more complicated. I, I don't think you know we are catching up on、mm-hmm. on the need. We are, of course. I think we, if we compare purely on the side of the supply,、uh, we have been improving, right? And we have、mm-hmm. been involving, you know, we have been involving EMR, and we're way more digitized than the old days. And you know, the diagnostic technology that we use compared to before, and the Type of treatment that we use for cancer care in your field、mm-hmm. uh, has been significantly improving, and、uh, but at the same time, and we are creating new demands, right?、Mm-hmm. Uh, the demand side is also fast、um, in evolving, and yeah, I, I mean, I just constantly feel that pressure of speeding up. Yeah, I I can't agree with you more.、Um, I think you raise a very interesting point. Of it's not only the number of patients, or you know, this number of,、um, uh, in a business term, number of eligible customers. Let's say it's not just the number of patients are increasing.、Uh, you know, which we which we know is with the、um, with the aging population. At the same time, it's also the complexity that comes with treating and diagnosing every single patient is also increasing tremendously over time. So you know what you ultimately get from a、um, from a demand side is that you're seeing almost a, a exponential growth. Um, with the amount of kind of cognitive power that is needed to take care of these patients, really.、Um, you know, I, I know you had mentioned the. You know, we all know that people are aging. We all know that you know. Let's say, look at societies like Japan, where the, <laughs> the entire country is running into this this challenge. Which I think, on a side note, I think would be really interesting for us to an episode in the future, specifically to see how the Japanese society is currently taking care of it.、Um, I think would be fascinating. Um, but in addition to that, you know, I think the complexity of care is is right on.、Um, you know, I think about cancer. About you know, let's say decades, twenty, thirty years ago, when we think about、uh, lung cancer, the categorization is simply you know usually your、uh, small cell or your non-small cell, and that's kind of it. And then the treatment options are also very. Uh, you know, limited. So you have you know your kind of big blockbuster ke-、uh, chemo's, and that's kind of it. However, if you 
look at it now, you know, coming with a lung cancer patient, there's all the genetic mutations that you would be able to get subcategorized into. And each one of them calls for a different therapy that is getting approved by FDA left and right every year. <laughs> so, you know, all of a sudden the, the complexity for treating a particular patient that walks into your door is much, much higher. At the same time, you also have more patients are walking through your door every day. So, you know, all of that is making it really, really challenging, I think, for our current healthcare uh, provider group to be able to manage it, you know, adequately, that it's just simply not humanly possible, really. Yeah, I mean, th th that probably means at some point we'll hit, well, who knows that it's the current model that's going to solve the problem? Who, who knows that we have to keep, you know, the, the, the whole doctor and nurse relationship to, to you know, the traditional mm -hmm. way of care. And if you think about it, we're still doing that after you know, hundreds of years, we're still, mm -hmm. you know, one patient seeing a doctor. Yep. But maybe mm -hmm. that's a model that needs to change, right? It could be, you know, if we go upstream to the genome part, mm -hmm. right? If we're making huge progress, but, you know, knowing people uh, on the genome part, I think people have a lot of, you know, again, I think the regulation part kind of, you know, hold that back mm -hmm. a bit uh, in a way, you know, for the better or worse, right? And, but, but I, I do believe, um, you know, with this additional pressure, I think these pressure are maybe obviously to us, but to normal people, especially mm -hmm. we're talking about middle, upper class who are not particularly marginalized by the shortage mm -hmm. itself, and it's not personal enough to them. And when they realize mm -hmm. that this, this shortage is more personal, uh, you know, I, I don't want to keep talking about this COVID part, but I, I do think it's relevant, right? It's kind of mm -hmm. a... A warning to say okay look what if everybody is sick during this time mm -hmm. how, how yep. is mm -hmm. your current model of healthcare system is going to react to that right like mm -hmm. you need to think about something drastically different and you mm -hmm. need something more innovative in terms of how you know model itself or the technology itself um or you know from medicine itself to to solve you know the treatment itself to treat or take care of patients more efficiently yeah, I really like your point about, um, you know, the whole one, one doctor looks at a one patient is a is a in itself a, a fairly consistent uh, model that hasn't really changed much. And it will be interesting, I think, you know, with the increasing demand side that we've been talking about, it will be really interesting to think about in the future how we could uh, let's say, improve the productivity of a single provider to be able to oversee, instead of one patient, let's say, a large panel of patients, right? You almost see, you know, you know a doctor instead of, let's say, you know, uh, seeing 20 patients a day face-to-face, uh, -face, maybe they are more of a, let's say, a control tower type of um, delivery model where they're just, they're managing population a pool of health. patients. Yeah, population health. They're managing a pool of patients. But at the same time, in order for it to be, um, you know, personalized, because everybody has their own different uh, health, system, yeah. uh, health situation they're working with, in order for it to be truly personalized. This is where you need data science, this is where you need the digital you know, delivery tools to be able to uh, target each individuals and be able to provide the care that uh, they need at the point that they need it, but all kind of done efficiently and productively by a provider who's kind of overseeing the entire group. Yeah, and my most interested uh, topics is also the precision medicine side, right? Mm -hmm. so Sometimes when I read about these, you know, the future of health, right? 
hot topics are obviously you know the involvement of uh, artificial intelligence and also how do we democratize the whole healthcare system and into more you know precision medicine, personalized medicine, or or what have you. We want a lot, but I still feel there's a disproportional um, investment in mm-hmm. you know either it's time or effort or attention on mm-hmm. that on the supply side and awareness it, itself as well. And I think mm-hmm. that's that's probably part of why we were interested in having this podcast as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let let me ask you this question. Um, you know, I think the the model that we just mentioned, where a provider can manage a population, uh, a group of patients, effectively, um, and be able to prescribe you know, individualized uh, service. Let's not even say treatment service to them. Um, even when they're healthy, right? You still want to make sure that they stay healthy. So you know that even goes into pre- to the preventative side. But so you know, I think if you speak to most of the uh, providers out there, none of them are going to disagree with you that this is ultimately where the healthcare delivery model needs to be. It's a dream for, I would say, I can't, I claim majority of the provider group. And so with that kind of knowing that everybody want it and there's a urgent need that we need to get there quickly with the uh, patient demand side increasing drastically. What are some of the things, you know, our topic is crossing the chasm. What do you think is the chasm that is sitting between us where we are now to where we ultimately want to get to? One of them is awareness, right? We're just talking about it's not personal enough to people. And for the most people, you know, when they when they need care, if they're not super sick or if mm-hmm. not like, you know, requiring specialized care or if not, you know, from a social economical point of view or not, you know, being marginalized, uh, for the most part, you know, it's fine. You can still go see a doctor, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's a matter of do you, do you like your doctor or not? And mm-hmm. you're just spending enough FaceTime, you know, with them. And maybe in the U.S. we're talking about, you know, 20, 30 minutes FaceTime. But in China, you like talking about seven, eight minutes or even two yep. minutes. They send you away. Yeah. So, uh-huh. so I think, you know, in that view, you know, we're not too bad, right? So, I mean, it's kind of depending on to what point when the majority of people, you know, mm. maybe we don't need the majority of people to, to realize this. We just probably ultimately need the policymaker to feel mm-hmm. the pressure on this, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think, you know, from a founding point of view, right, I don't see that being too far away because sooner or later when you do, you know, you do your budget. Uh, I mean, if you if you look at the Netherlands, right, or even the Nordic countries, the people, a regular female, they're projected to um, work until they're seventy five or like mm-hmm. close to that seventy to seventy five uh, until they can actually retire. So, I mean, the system simply is not sustainable, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you cannot expect, you know, what is going to gonna be if we keep the current system for a long time then you know you expect people to work until they're 80 90 not possible right so mm-hmm. i think that's something it, it will soon get real from a financial point of view um you know unless they want to change you know the whole you know how how, how the social welfare works then they have to figure out a solution sooner or later and um i think on the other side you know besides the financial pressure um, I would say, you know, the understanding of technology from the clinician side. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I'm going to be more on the optimistic side when, 
the new generations of nurses and doctors, they, they grew up in this environment, you know, like you and me, uh, we grew up with technology, right? It's part of our life. So naturally, I, I would hope acceptance to adopting, you know, uh, a, I wouldn't say it's, you know, completely, it's never going to replace healthcare itself. And I'm a huge believer on, you know, technology and policy serves healthcare rather than replaces healthcare per se. So. Uh, I think the degree of acceptance from the clinicians uh, is going to be key to, you know, realizing, you know, crossing this chasm itself. Um, and people need to feel comfortable and safe. And how do people feel comfortable and safe is to understand it rather than fearing it, right? And mm-hmm. there needs to be more people. I would say, you know, the whole buzzwords that we have about uh, i used to make this joke with my friends whenever they mention the word big data or artificial intelligence they have to explain to me what do you mean by that um, yep. mm-hmm. you know with with three sentences and for the most part people don't understand what it means and they might have the wrong understanding as well so you know if, if for the people who are working in the in- industry can give a right explanation how do you expect you know the clinicians to feel comfortable with that not not really right and and on the other hand, it's not only to know, to define the technical terms, but it's to translate into their mm-hmm. own language, right? A language that they feel comfortable about um, accepting because ultimately they are the patient touching, you know, stakeholders. They're going to mm-hmm. take care of patients and need to be accountable and responsible for that. So um, I-, I would say in my view, that's the key to crossing the chasm um, itself. What do you think? Yeah, um, I agree with all the things that you had mentioned. Um, I think being able to do the translation piece to be able to help um, our users understand exactly how it benefits them, that it, it is not a, you know, in, in a way that it's not a traditional, let's say, tech company and I help you. This is what your SLA means, right? This is our, let's say, uh, our mm-hmm. uptime percentage guarantee that I give to you. It, that's cool for a tech provider but when we translate it to a physician all they care about is all right you know this okay this is this is what i do before this is what i do after this is how i'm going to be able to provide the service better to my patient so you know being able to do that translation piece well to actually make it matter to them and help them understand the value i think i think is key um another thing i know we haven't talked much about um which i think is actually quite uh, interesting um, in healthcare and making things slow is uh, data or the, the messiness of it. Um, I I remember because I my my background before I came into healthcare I was in consumer products and supply chain and in which you know data is everything you you know we track everything down to the T. Um, and that, you know, there's a million dashboards, there's a million control centers. And then, you know, with the kind of, with a good foundation of data already being there, it becomes very easy for, um, you know, it, it, it paves a very good foundation for things like AI, machine learning, you know, however you want to define a linear regression, <laughs> right? Um, that, uh, and that's just the, not the kind of environment that uh, healthcare is in right now, uh, you know, gosh, uh, just 10 years ago, a lot of the practice were still on pen, pens and paper. They're not even onto anything, you know, ele- ele- electronic. So um, now I think it's a good first step that because of government mandate within the U.S., every practice is forced to use EHR. And I think people are now 
learning how to live and work in a digital environment. However, there's still all these legacy data that is out there. And even within EHR, we all know that the data is extremely uh, messy or, you know, they mostly exist in nodes and the, the, the nodes are in, in structured data that require a lot of NLP to get out of. So, you know, I think overall as an industry, we're not ripe or, you know, it, it, we don't have the foundation as easily as easily established for us to be able to uh, you know, do a lot with it, really, you know, to start, you know, analyzing or even, gosh, I can imagine, you know, data science and other things. Yeah, I think that's a good point. For data, I'm always fascinated about data. And I think uh, one thing that struck me, right, I, I started, I mean, back in college, I did a lot of kind of financial data uh, before I entered into the healthcare field. And if you look at stock market data, it's, it's obviously completely different from uh, the, the EMR or medical data, right? So uh, in several ways, right? And, and in your case, the consumer data. And I feel, um, one, the, the tolerance for errors or sensitivity to error uh, is is very is very different. And again, that come back to, you know, dealing with people's lives and medical decisions. And, and on the other hand, the medical decision itself is... Um, there's a huge factor on judgment as well, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to think, unless we're talking about hardcore medical indicators, like, you know, uh, your arterial pressure, your, you know, your body weight and your, mm -hmm. you know, hemoglobin level and, you know, all of those uh, medical outcomes indicators that you can quantify. But, you know, to make a medical decision, um, for a complicated decision, I would say for mm -hmm. maybe, I'm not a doctor myself, so I can't make, that judgment for but from my observation there's a huge factor on, on the judgment side right the, mm -hmm. the patient uh, and many of the kind of the symptom itself also have to be reported by patient mm -hmm. and uh, to make a medical judgment um, how much can be or, or maybe not how much but where can be big data be m most helpful is where we are still testing on and you know locating in the uk of course you know deep mind is a <laughs> is, mm -hmm. is one of my uh you know uh the, the close watched um companies right they you know after AlphaGo, of course you know it, it sounds quite promising that if they were to enter into healthcare fields uh, everybody kind of put the hope on you know maybe we should consider an episode about that in the future mm -hmm. without you know getting too digressed here but do I think there is a huge role of data in improving healthcare? Yes. But how long is it going to take for us to get that comfortable for it to make, I wouldn't say independently make decision, but like, you know, at least serve as a decision-making support tool for clinicians mm -hmm. to make their decisions and, and potentially, you know, dynamically correct the, the data itself as, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, maybe the machine makes this decision, will give mm -hmm. the suggestion and the clinician mm -hmm. kind of did the check and balance for the interim side and say, okay, look, I don't think it's reasonable. I don't know why the machine is telling me this, but maybe I'm missing something. So it's kind of like a peer review kind of, you know, mm -hmm. in, in coding, we'll, we'll be having like peer coding. And so, mm -hmm. so maybe, maybe the machine could, could act as a peer coder. Uh, when you're trying to, you know, make the healthcare better, or at least for that transitional period before, you know, kind of like self-driving car, right? You're not mm -hmm. going to have a self-driving car right away. You're going to have, um, uh, you're going to have someone to, to, to help it. We have to make sure it's, it's supervised. Yeah. Going back to my previous life of working supply chain. Hey, you. 
Thank you so much for your attention there. If you have any thoughts, opinions, or feedback, we would love it if you can join us on our Slack channel in the description link.